You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. I'm incredibly happy to welcome you in our panel in Ukraine now and tomorrow. My name is Oksana uh, Stoichuk and uh, I'm a lecturer in the Department of German, Nordic and Slavic. Uh, I personally am from Lviv, from Ukraine, uh, where I finished my bachelor and master degrees in German studies. I did my PhD at Freie University of Berlin, writing about contemporary German literature written by migrants and refugees. And since 2019, I have a pleasure and an honor to teach at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, let me introduce my colleagues and co-organizers of this panel. Uh, Sarah Perpuchin is a lecturer in Russian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, in research and pedagogy, her interests include Vladimir Nabokov, political uses of history and aesthetics, individual agency in art and clearing the canon. She's a co-editor of the volume Reimagining Nabokov, Pedagogies for the 21st Century, that was published in 2022 in Amherst College Press. Uh, this semester, um, Sarah is teaching a history of Russian culture. And uh, Yoshiko Herrera is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research focuses on Russian politics, nationalism, identity and ethnic politics, political economy, and state statistics, and international norms. Uh, her research has been published with Cambridge University Press, Cornell University Press, Perspectives on Politics, Comparative Politics, political analysis, social science quarterly, and post-Soviet affairs and other outlets. In uh, 2021, Yoshiko uh, was a recipient of the Chancellor's Distinguished Teaching Award at UW Madison, and uh, Professor Herrera is also teaching a course on Ukraine this semester. Uh, me, myself, I'm teaching this semester Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture both courses that are offered to students for the first time at UW-Madison, and I'm incredibly honored uh, to be the first teacher of these courses and to have the first students uh, so interested in Ukraine and Ukrainian culture. So before we continue, um, I would like to say thank you to David Danaher, uh, Chief of Chair of Slavic, who for the idea to organize uh, this panel, and also for to Krika uh, for all the support um, of this organization of this panel. Our panel emerged from the courses, from two courses that we are teaching this semester, from my course on Ukrainian uh, culture and the course of uh, Sarah on uh, Russian culture. So the idea behind this panel was to engage uh, students in response to uh, Russia's war on, in Ukraine. So our students in both courses were given a small assignment to submit uh, questions on Ukraine. Um, the numbers of questions we received exceeded all our expectations. 
in total we've received around 130 questions. Um, we didn't limit the students on the topic, so uh, in general we received the questions starting from Trapelian culture, how Trapelian culture influenced the culture uh, of contemporary Ukraine, what weaponry the Borisian Cossacks were using, uh, how the uh, Ukrainian feminism emerged in the end of 19th century, right? uh, until the questions like, um, what do Ukrainians do with their pets during the war? Which is, by the way, a fascinating topic, as one of my students who is interested in animal studies uh, presented in one of my uh, sessions. Right? Uh, so obviously, we will not be able to cover many of the questions. But the level of curiosity is absolutely fantastic. And also, what I already told to my students, and I will uh, love to repeat it to the students of SRS course, if you don't hear your question, it doesn't mean that your question is less valuable or less, less interesting or less fascinating. And so uh, please continue to learn about Ukraine. And today we had kind of like the free format of choosing the questions um, uh, that we are feeling too important maybe nowadays to talk about. Uh, so we will try in our responses to combine a cultural, historical, political context and, um, and we will try, it's basically the, the first attempt also to talk to students directly about what is going on in uh, Ukraine. So by choosing the question, I had to really struggle, it's a lot of struggle to choose the question, how to choose the question, because this is what exactly I, I am struggling partially in my course on Ukrainian culture, uh, how to talk about Ukrainian culture without war, Obviously, it's not possible, but not to make the whole course on Ukrainian culture just on the war. Because obviously, Ukraine is much more than the war. And uh, there are so many cultural events through the history of Ukraine that are absolutely fascinating and we have to learn, but still have, having these perspectives of war in our heads. Because uh, it's obviously not a surprise that most of the students who came to the class probably came to the class because of the war. We never, we never could know what would happen if we didn't have uh, this war, but we'll still have the class. So I, I chose a strategy to choose the question for today's panel that, um, that had the most interest of the students. So uh, those kind of questions um, were mentioned by many, many of the students. And first question that uh, I will start on, I will uh, write, uh, dive into, into the discussion is why Putin attacked Ukraine, right? Not a surprising question. And even if um, I'm sure that most of you attended already many panels and had the discussion many, many times, the question is still something that the students is asking yourself, that we are asking yourself, and I don't think that uh, this question will be answered at some point um, enough. So I will, uh, I will tell you my perspective on what, what is going on and how do I see the reasons for this attack. Uh, maybe partially, obviously, also from Ukrainian perspective, uh, but uh, which answers I found for myself to, to, answer, to answer this for. So to make it, uh, to make it uh, obviously we can talk about that, uh, the whole panel, only to answer this question. But um, in general, the idea that I think is important 
that every Ukrainian think about um, about talking about talking about the war is that in general Russian elites never fully accepted the existence of Ukraine as an independent state. I found an interesting interview a couple of years ago um, where the advisor of Mikhail Gorbachev uh, was the name of Alexander Tsipko, Alexander Tsipko uh, who mentioned the uh, events, the happenings uh, before 1991, before uh, the day that Ukraine, uh, Ukraine gained independence. And uh, he was stated in this, in this uh, interview that basically um, uh, before the uh, referendum on independence of Ukraine uh, that happened on December 1st, 1991, uh, there was a discussion between Russian elites what to do with the mass protests that were happening in Ukraine. And uh, at that point, they decided to let it go without using military force. And the reason was that nobody believed that Ukraine will be a sustainable state, that it will be a sustainable nation. So the idea was to let it go and then wait until Ukraine will come to the, on the knees back to Russia begging for, um, for recreating the political unity. So this idea, uh, whether this idea uh, uh, was fully believed or not, but this was the, the impulses uh, behind, behind the independence of Ukraine. And um, in general, um, what we can say that the question of Ukraine as part of Russia was never out of table for the Russian politics. And then the question, of course, would be, okay, why now? Why today? Um, I would have my question, my, my response to this question, uh, first of all, is that um, we have now in Ukraine already uh, the generation, generation of people who uh, did not have experience of Soviet Union. Right? And obviously we'll have the next generation as well. But for those people now, right, and for more and more people uh, as of today, uh, the idea of unity between Russia and Ukraine is not already part of their lives. So basically the time was ticking, right? The time was ticking to restore this idea of historical, this phantasmagora, right, of, of historical unity, using still the historical memory of the people who were in the Soviet Union, for whose the idea of the one state, of the one political formation, would be not so absurd as it is for younger generations. Uh, I personally think uh, that, and obviously this was not one-time decision, I personally think that the decision to uh, start the invasion of Ukraine was more or less decided after the Orange Revolution in 2004. Um, Orange Revolution that lasted three months between November 24 until January 25. Uh, one of the mass protests after the independence of Ukraine, but definitely the biggest pro protest before, uh, before Maidan, obviously. It was 10 years before Maidan. Uh, the uh, reasons for the protests uh, were the uh, electoral fraud in favor of the uh, presidential candidate Viktor Yanukovych, the same Viktor Yanukovych that we had Maidan. Um, the reason of uh, because why we had Maidan ten years later. So this was the first time that uh, first uh, first time for the Ukrainians for the people. Uh, this, per, this possibility to see themselves on the streets and to feel the power of decision. This was the freely, uh, the uh, peacefully demonstration 
and uh, the demonstrations won at that time. Uh, there was recounting the voices, and Viktor uh, Yushchenko became the president instead of Viktor Yanukovych. Right, but this was definitely important event uh, for the public conscious. We can do that. If we are not agree, we will. Re we, we can reach. We are many. We are many, and we have power. Right. And what did it mean for uh, Russian elites at that time? Uh, I think nobody expected at that time uh, that the demonstrations can be as big as they were in the, during Orange Revolutions. And um, one of the reasons that I think why the decision was. Uh, uh, was uh, accepted uh, more or less at that time after the Orange Revolution was that in 2008, in 2008 we had a big celebration, the anniversary of baptizing of Kyiv and Rus, which was organized by Russian Orthodox Church. And um, this idea, uh, right, of historical, so-called historical unity is based in general on this idea of religious unity, a cultural unity obviously, but this religious unity to the extent that it's almost like spiritual unity between uh, between the nations, right? And um, this celebration of baptizing of Kyivan Rus, it was the first time that the Russian Orthodox Church initiated uh, the celebration. Of, it was 1,000 years from, from, from the baptizing of Kyivan Rus, but um, but it was the first time in independence of Ukraine that they decided to restore to restore this narrative uh, based on the unity that goes back to Kievan Rus. And from that time, this idea of Russian world, right, not nation, but Russian world, Ruski Mir, uh, started to be very, very loud. Right, so I would, I think, this was the time when the Russian elite started to prepare prepare their own society right, to gain the support uh, to, to, to uh, spreading obviously this idea of, of unity um, and obviously the fact that uh, this um, celebration about the side of Kyiv and Rus uh, was decided to celebrate in Kyiv, right, uh, as to show the people that we are really one people, right? There is no Ukraine as, as independent unity. Um, it was, was a crucial point, as for me, in understanding and um, in understanding and spreading this misinformation and this uh, restore the, the, the Russian narratives from uh, before. Um, what past experiences and encounters between Ukraine and Russia do you believe impacted the war the most? And if these occurrences did not happen, would the war have happened? What I personally think, the war is not inevitable, uh, was inevitable. I don't think that there could be anything anyone could do to prevent this war, except maybe uh, the reaction, uh, world reaction after the annexation of Crimea. And this was definitely one of the points that gave the Putin the green light to do uh, to, to go further. Uh, but in general, this idea, uh, this understanding of Russia as a constant threat, uh, it was always in the air. Right? It was always in the air. Um, the last drop, maybe, that I uh, continue this this uh, idea of Kyivanus and the importance of the event of celebration of anniversary of the of the in 2008. Maybe the last job would be the Thomas. Uh, this is the, uh, happened on January 5th, 2019. So the Patriarch of Constantinople uh, gave officially the independence to Ukrainian Orthodox Church. 
which was definitely the heart of Putin's idea of the unity uh, between um, uh, of uh, Russia and Ukraine. But again, I don't think that any, any, any events could prevent this war. Um, was it a shock for Ukraine as for the whole world? It was definitely a shock. But I would allow me to reformulate the question, was it a surprise? And based on what I already told, um, in Ukraine, it was not really a surprise, not for so many people, uh, not for many people as you might think. Um, and I'm talking not about the US, US intelligence, who apparently knew about the Putin's plan a couple of months before or half a year uh, ago. Um, anyone who is familiar uh, with, with Ukrainian history and with the history of our relations between Ukraine and Russia um, could not be surprised. We still have people alive. Um, actually few of them nowadays, but uh, still we have people that uh, that survived the Holodomor, the Stalin uh, famine uh, uh, created by Stalin in uh, 32, 32, 1932, 1933. Uh, we still have basically the central part of Ukrainian elites nowadays um, are the dissidents from Soviet Union from the 60s and 70s like um, Miroslav Marinovich, who is a vice-president of Lviv Catholic University, one of the strongest universities uh, in Ukraine. Um, he and the co-founder of Helsinki group, this was a human rights group uh, created in 1976. Uh, he spent nine years in uh, Soviet camps, Soviet language camps, uh, for, uh, for representing the idea uh, of Ukrainian independence. We have Igor Kalinets, uh, uh, one of the main uh, poets in Western Ukraine, at least, who uh, spent exactly ten, nine years uh, in Soviet labor camps. Uh, we have Levko Lukyanenko, one of the co-founders as well of Helsinki Group and uh, the author of Declaration of Independence of Ukraine, um, which who, who spent over 27 years in the camps in Soviet Union and was released two years before the independence of Ukraine. So just this was just a couple of names, right? But those are the part of the important elite that still remember. There are still life memory of what will happen when uh, when we decide to have some kind of unity. Right? And, and and this term when we when we think about how, how could it be surprised? No, it wasn't a surprise, right? The question were rather when, um, then uh, in general, uh, then would it happen or not? Uh, answering another question, there was never a zero tension between Ukraine and Russia. Um, what is also interesting that full-scale invasion actually was predicted by some of the Ukrainian writers. If you read the essays of Oksana Zabushkova, the main Ukrainian feminist writer, um, she was predicting the war uh, already, the full-scale war, um, at the same time that uh, right after Crimea was occupied. And um, I remember her um, her speech in Berlin in 2014 when she dared to compare Hitler to um, uh, to Putin. Uh, her mic um, her mic was off after a couple of seconds, right? which is not the case today. Uh, right, but uh, she is the one who say I told you, and she is one of the intellectuals, one of the many who represented the city a long time before it really happened. Um, also, of course, what is important to understand that the Russian war in Ukraine is not only about or the territory of Ukraine. The Russian war in Ukraine has always been the war on Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian language. 
Um, just some facts only in 20th century, Finland was banned from schools, theaters, and more specific events over 20 times, and not even mentioned 19th century. Um, so when we think about the reasons, when I think about the reasons from the Ukrainian perspective, and there are many, many questions about the role of NATO, which I'm sure that uh, Yushiko will have to add a lot to this question. But the question, for example, of NATO in Ukraine and the threats and the reason uh, was much less, much more popular in Western media than it was in Ukraine. NATO was actually not really in the debate, the actual political debate or societal debate before, uh, before the war, right, before the February uh, 22. We do know that most people, uh, most Ukrainians were against NATO. Um, most of the people probably would not understand what does it mean to enter the NATO, but it was definitely not the topic that should we enter the NATO or not. And it was just some kind of idea, maybe the future perspective uh, uh, of Ukraine, uh, maybe this is one of the first goals is obviously European Union, the second one maybe NATO, but again, it was more than an abstract idea. Right? So this, uh, we have <laughs> enough reasons through the history and culture of Ukraine to not think that the NATO uh, is, is, is guilty in this war, and we don't need NATO to be attacked by Russians. And um, the last question, I'll, uh, I'll answer this shortly, but I think it's so important, I'm so thankful for this question, um, because this question was probably top two questions mentioned um, in your assignment. How can we best support Ukraine right now? And um, I can give you a dozens of answers to this. And I know I have I know students. I, I know that I have students who are uh, volunteering. I know that I have students who are donating money to different volunteer organizations. But in general, I would say do what you can do. And I'm uh, so happy to have the students in my class. I think the students did already the first, uh, probably most important step towards knowing more uh, about Ukraine and what is going on and helping Ukraine in that way. Uh, by coming to the class, by coming to this panel, and by uh, showing such um, such a huge curiosity about what is really going on. Uh, but I will still give another advice, more concrete, that I think is important. Please read Ukrainian news. Please listen to Ukrainian podcasts. Please read, uh, listen to uh, to the uh, intellectuals from Ukraine, right? Because it is absolutely important to to listen to Ukrainian voices. And I will assure you that after some of times you will notice a difference how the Western medias and how Ukrainians are talking about the war. Western medias cannot see this war through the eyes of Ukrainians. Right? And um, I mean, one of the things uh, uh, from the philological details, like we are now 30 years after the independence of Ukraine, and the most media uh, still uh, didn't change the way of writing Ukrainian cities, like Kyiv, not Kyiv, uh, Kharkiv, not Kharkov, right? Although, again, uh, uh, 30 years, right? Uh, explaining, this, explaining this with international standards, which international standards, which were set by Soviet Union, obviously, right? Um, but it's also, obviously, that um, the, the news that you will hear in Western media is about NATO and, uh, and all of it. This is all important. I don't say, I don't say that there is no important Western intellectuals. Uh, not at all. But we have to listen to Ukrainian voices to understand what is going on, which I think is in general lacking uh, when we deal with this perspective of Ukraine. And um, the last thing about that, that um, I know that my course and the topic in general um, is very stressful. Uh, upsetting for many of my students. 
Um, but in general, I would really um, advise you not uh, not to allow uh, everything what is going on this war to steal your curiosity about Ukraine, about Ukrainian culture, because it is again much more than than the war, much more than the violence that you have to experience uh, those days. Okay, now I will give the word to Sarah. The name of the panel, just make sure we're in the right place. Um, uh, and these are the questions that I would like to focus on. Uh, I will probably talk the most about the first one of the three here, and um, and then move on to the second, and then uh, talk about maybe the sixth one because it addresses the question of the future of. Ukrainian slash Russian uh, relations. But before I um, embark on those, I wanted to mention and maybe be uh, emphatic uh, or at least very clear about the difference of expertise uh, that um, I think I represent compared to my co-panelists. Um, I do um, represent cultural, historical, um, sometimes when it's questioned or not questioned, ideological as well, Russian knowledge. Um, and um, I am also uh, a representative of a methodology that might um, differ from those uh, of uh, such disciplines as political science, sociology, etc. So I will try to... Um, focus on how the war is perceived in Russia from the standpoint of culture predominantly, maybe venture into such adjacent areas as political science and sociologists, but even if I do so, uh, please be aware that I'm not an expert in those fields and I offer them my opinions on uh, such questions only as... Um, uh, observations of a non-expert. So the first question, how does the youth in Russia feel about the war? Do the majority speak out against the war? Do they support Putin? Um, importantly, this question comes from one of my students in the class that I'm teaching, and the uh, uh, question is an important one. Uh, the very big question, how do we know about what the majority thinks in Russia. After the war began, it became virtually impossible to tell for a number of reasons. There are three kinds of surveys that um, is available, uh, are available in the public sphere today that coming from Russia that tell you or can tell you potentially or purport to tell you, uh, sometimes rather aggressively without um, really the evidence, that they know what the majority thinks. And propaganda uses those specifically for those uh, purposes, to convince the population that this is what the majority wants or believes or thinks. So the three types. One, it's uh, commissioned by uh, FSO, Federal uh, in Russian, Federal Service of guards, I suppose, uh, they are responsible for the safety and security of the president himself, and um, 
they do conduct their own surveys. Those surveys serve the propaganda predominantly. Uh, so the government commissions their own surveys to know what really happens, and they use those surveys to justify what they're doing very often. Um, the second kind of surveys are conducted by uh, places like Levada, Fond Abshesno Mnenia, so Levada Center, um, the Foundation for Public Opinion. Those are relatively, or again, uh, nominally independent uh, or non-government organizations that try to survey the public opinion. Um, they have their own methodologies. They have a reputation. They used to have a reputation. After the war began, they became essentially unreliable. And the third kind of survey would be um, grassroots organizations, sometimes um, at great risk, uh, try to survey through phone uh, the opinion of the population in major cities, such as Moscow predominantly. One such, a, such organization is Russian Field. Uh, it's in Russian. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's in English, the title, the name of the organization. And they conduct their surveys. Uh, at this point, I think it's their 10th wave of surveys. They do this again by phone. They try to be representative and transparent. Again, in terms of transparency, only this, the last kind of survey uh, is reliable. The first two kind of surveys tell you that in um, the population at large, there is a majority, two-thirds to three-quarters, uh, who support the war. The independent, tr methodologically transparent kind of surveys, however, tells you that uh, actually, considering when the surveys are conducted, you can see a change, a dramatic change, from July to, let's say, I think the last one was in October, uh, and they're starting the new one now. And um, um, I apologize for not having that graphic on the screen, but it's basically uh, the number of people in support of peace negotiations with Ukraine and Russia in July, it was 32%, in um, 32 in July, the rest, let's not, and in uh, October slash November, it's 55%, a big jump towards, again, we want to actually start peace negotiations. And the second uh, question was about, should the war continue? 57% in July supported, 25% in uh, November. So there is a change in mood in terms of support uh, for continuing the war slash peace negotiation with Ukraine in Russia that, um, again, this is all we have. Otherwise, it's propaganda, it's um, uh, the loud uh, speakers representing the government who tell you that most of Russians want to uh, continue the war. Um, in terms of how does the youth of, in Russia feel about the war, again, according to the surveys that are available, uh, the unreliable slash manipulated doctored surveys that are used and abused for, by propagandists uh, as well as people outside of Russia who uh, are against the regime and try to actually build a momentum to resist it. Um, the uh, uh, consensus is that uh, 
55 plus, 65 plus generation of Russians are in support of the war for a number of reasons. They are least affected. They are uh, no longer in the workforce actively, often retired. Uh, secondly, uh, they are least affected by the changes in economic conditions in Russia. Um, because there are major changes. So most of the world uh, brands that generations of Russians were used to are now gone, and the people, the only people who remember the time before those brands were present in the Russian market are the ones, again, 55 plus, 65 plus. They are least affected psychologically, they are least affected by the mobilization, they are not the ones who are risking their lives. Um, so all, all of that. Um, all of those are reasons why uh, there will be support for for the war among that uh, demographic. Um, it, we, can also, uh, we can also talk about um, the I don't know the cynicism of that generation. Um, Fifty-five plus, sixty-five plus. They were maturing in the 70s, the most cynical Soviet decade, again, culturally speaking, uh, the, the, the period when the Soviet regime was becoming performative, basically. Ideologically, it became less and less uh, valid or more and more empty. And um, again, Putin belongs to that generation. The elite, so-called, of the Russian uh, decision-making uh, people, entities, etc., um, are also all belonging to that generation. Putin surrounded himself by 60-plus, 70-plus people who feel the same way, have the same background, make similar decisions, do not disagree. And imagine what it can do to a political system if uh, this is the case that perpetuates itself for 20 years. Um, less and less disagreement, more and more uh, consistency or uh, isolation, um, almost hermetic, uh, especially uh, at this point. Uh, the second question, very quickly, uh, what is stopping Putin's internal circle from eliminating him from office? That's a big question. <laughs> Nobody knows. And least of all, probably, I, who uh, am outside of the actual cultural sphere where such conversations can have any kind of um, validity. Um, but from what I can tell you from what I know, uh, the uh, consensus again seems to be that there is an uh, unusual degree of cohesion among the decision makers around Putin. Putin created a system, again politically, ideologically, culturally, in such a way that the decision makers repeat what he has in mind, confirm uh, what he has in mind, and do not try to argue. It's a very superficial way of looking at it. Um, again, I uh, want to acknowledge that, but uh, that's all we have time for now. And the uh, I think the sixth question is also interesting. In our, uh, in your opinion, once Putin is no longer president, what will be the attitude of the Russian state towards Ukraine? 
Um, the short and nice non-committal answer, the non-answer really would be to say nobody knows, but um, if we do have to think in that direction, we can say that uh, it seems that, um, first of all, institutionally, uh, there will be reparations. Um, whether or not Russia wants, the Russian state wants it or not. Um, secondly, there will be a period of institutional repair that will have to happen because of the wave of ruptures, institutional ruptures that are happening within uh, the relation, the, the long history of Russia versus Europe and the rest of the world in general. So Russia terminating, sometimes unilaterally, so many of the treaties, uh, leaving so many of the organizations uh, in the wake of this war will have to be repaired. There will, be have, there will have to be some kind of, I don't know, legal framework. Um, uh, I'm not talking about ideological or cultural even. That's a whole new question. But legally, there will be a period of adjustment or readjustment, a very long and painful period when Russia will be uh, will have to either follow the rules, and once they follow the rules, the trust will be restored. If that doesn't happen, Russia will remain to be isolated, remain a pariah, uh, and uh, with catastrophic results for Russians. Everybody who's left in Russia, they will feel it soon enough. Um, the, uh, the, the mood among the Russian experts who uh, remain in Russia, there are very few, by the way, Whoever can leave tries to leave, but people like Natalia Zubarevich, for instance, an economist, a geographic, uh, an economic geographer, uh, she teaches at uh, Moscow University State, she is extremely pessimistic about what's going to happen to the industry, to the economy, to the political system, and uh, everything that is adjacent um, to, to those spheres. I think. Uh, besides that, um, I think I'm going to end on maybe one more uh, thing. I'm going to recapitulate, um, or <laughs> return to uh, a, an idea that um, uh, my colleague uh, Oksana Stachuk, Professor Oksana Stachuk, has already mentioned about the uh, question of political subjecthood. And again, I'm speaking as a non-expert. Please bear with me um, if, if I speak uh, imprecisely, terminologically, but uh, the question of looking, uh, or the problem really, of looking at Ukraine and the conflict, the war in Ukraine as a war, a proxy war between Russia and the West, for instance, basically reduces the nation that is bearing the brunt of that destruction in every sense to um, a recipient of subjecthood from someone else. It comes from either the West, from NATO, what have European Union. Without the European Union, Ukraine cannot have subjecthood. Or from Russia. And this is why Russia thinks they are justified in this aggression. They think that they are the ones who can give agency, give subjecthood 
to the sovereign nation of Ukraine. This is exactly why I think um, uh, I know I'm returning to this point about political subjecthood. It doesn't come from NATO, it doesn't come from Europe. It comes from the long and tortuous and sometimes glorious uh, history of Ukraine um, that has existed as a nation for a long time. And um, I am optimistic. I think it will continue to exist in ways maybe even that are more interesting than um, the, the way that Russia will exist as a political entity. Uh, and on this note, I think I'm going to pause. Thanks for organizing, and um, I'm happy to be on this panel. I got um, 15 questions for 15 minutes, so I don't know that we'll be able to answer them all. But um, I divided the questions into four... I don't know why this is not going. Into four, um, kind of four groups, and I'll try to answer some of those um, in turn. Okay, so actually just to follow on um, some of the comments. So I am responding to the questions that students ask, even though I do think that um, we, I just want to note the last point, that this is a, a Russian war in Ukraine, and um, the U.S. and NATO have a role in this war, but it's not a war between NATO and Russia. That's a very important point. And um, it should be a kind of Ukraine-centered um, conversation. But let me um, speak to some of the questions that were raised about what is the U.S. role. Um, I think may, most people maybe know already that the United States is a member, a founding member of NATO, an alliance of 30 countries. The United States is an important member of NATO. And uh, NATO is supporting uh, Ukraine in this war, but actually NATO doesn't actually provide direct assistance. The assistance comes from individual countries, some even not yet in NATO, like from Sweden, for example. So the United States is providing um, direct military assistance uh, via NATO to, um, to Ukraine. So one of the key things the U.S. is doing is that uh, it took the Ukrainian side and is, is helping them with um, with weapons and uh, munitions, et cetera. But the United States does not have direct troops on the ground in Ukraine, and I think that if we could discuss the U U.S. strategy under the Biden administration, essentially is to do everything possible up to the line of a direct U.S. or NATO confrontation with Russia. So this line of where it is is not exactly clear, and I think the evolution of support over time is uh, reflective of the, the shifting nature of that line. And the U.S. has tried to see what it could get away with doing that's caused a lot of uh, criticism from circles of, that the U.S. should be doing more. But I think the U.S. strategy essentially is to do as much as possible but uh, avoid a direct war. What could the U.S. do to improve? Uh, obviously, more weapons, more aid, um, and more sanctions. So not just on the military side. The, the sanctions are another important step, and there can be more sanctions, secondary sanctions, and additional sanctions that I think could continue to weaken the Putin um, regime, but in the, in the, on the military side, of course, more weapons, more ammunition sooner would be helpful. Um, what's holding other countries back? As I said, the U.S. doesn't want to have a direct war between the U.S. Or, or NATO and Russia, and why? And that's precisely because of the threat of nuclear escalation. And to discuss that threat does not mean to be um, 
succumbing to blackmail, etc. It's that the United States uh, and few other countries have nuclear weapons. NATO has access to nuclear weapons, and Russia is a nuclear power. And there is a there is a legitimate threat of nuclear escalation, and that's the main reason for avoiding this. On the plus side, I think we know from different uh, intelligence that's come out that China is quite against any nuclear use by Russia. And I think that even though there was a lot of discussion of the nuclear threat, um, a lot of that has, uh, a, I would say, the, the probability of nuclear exchange has gone down in recent weeks, in my opinion. Um, so, yeah, so the question, the secondary question was, is it solely about nuclear concern? I think the nuclear concern is the biggest possible threat. Um, if Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, um, if a state like Russia were committing the kind of atrocities and had waged a war on a country like Ukraine, I think NATO and the United States would have acted sooner um, in, in a stronger way and with direct military intervention by NATO or the U.S., um, but the nuclear threat is what's uh, so far um, uh, limiting U.S. support. Okay, second set of questions had to do with the role of Europe and other international organizations. Um, what role have European countries played in the war? I think we shouldn't underestimate how important it is that as soon as, and not even when the war broke out on February 24th, but in the, run, in the long run-up to the war in the fall of 2021, um, Putin probably thought that America was polarized, it is polarized, and thought that this would be a break on U.S. action. Um, and he thought that Trump had sufficiently weakened the U.S. relationship with Europe, um, as well as the U.S. relationship with NATO, so that Europe, NATO, the United States would not act um, in concert. And European countries, not just NATO countries or EU countries, but countries throughout Europe uh, have pretty much all acted um, on the side of Ukraine, and that has been incredibly important on the sanctions and also incredibly important on the NATO actions. Even though there is some disagreement by some countries like Hungary, um, Italy, etc., those countries still remain in in support of the NATO position and in support of Ukraine. And I think that's really important. So I think European countries have individually contributed money. Germany doubled its defense budget um, in the wake of this invasion, which is not a small thing. It's a huge, like, decades-long uh, challenge was to get Germany to spend more on uh, defense and security, and they have always resisted, and now they um, are stepping up, although, of course, there's complaints that they're not doing enough. Um, same with Sweden and Finland have for decades um, stayed on the side of neutrality and not wanted to become members of NATO, and that, that has switched. So I think European, and most importantly, so European countries played a role in providing a united front on sanctions and also on the military support of Ukraine. But the other piece of it is that the sanctions are very easy in some ways for the United States because we basically are not feeling any of the pain. But Europeans are facing incredibly high energy costs and other direct economic effects of the sanction, which we are not really feeling in the United States. So the, the maintenance of sanctions regime and support in Ukraine depends on individual Europeans being willing to absorb this cost. In some countries like Poland and the Baltic states, they're ready to invade <laughs> Moscow at this point. They're going to pay any cost. But that's not the case everywhere. And for individual citizens, even if you say, I really support Ukraine, saying, and I'm willing to pay like two, three, five times 
energy bill um, to heat my apartment is another level of um, commitment that, that we're not really um, subject to in, in the U.S. Um, so, okay, the second question, um, hindering, expediting this war. One thing I want to say about NATO, I, I was shocked yesterday to listen. I was just driving home, um, not in my normal car, in my husband's car that only has regular radio, and I'm forced <laughs> to listen to FM radio. And, and at the time, all that's on, and my phone is dead, so I have no choices but to listen to FM radio. And Democracy Now! episode is on with Jeffrey Sachs, who is a prominent economist who advised Russia, Poland, other East European states in the 1990s. He's now at Columbia, and I was just stunned at the level of ignorant, wrong uh, statements coming from him, including blaming the war on NATO expansion. This is a, a view I normally associate with John Mearsheimer, um, who, is a, who is a professor at University of Chicago, where I was a graduate student, he was a professor then, 30 years ago, uh, saying the same thing. Um, but the idea that NATO caused the war, I think, is just wrong on multiple levels. I would be happy to go through the details with people. Um, but just the most simplistic thing is that NATO expansion happened between 1998 and uh, just a few years ago. It's, it's unraveled in different waves. And so there were many points at which a NATO expansion could have caused a war. It did not. And also, the fact that Sweden and Finland are now joining NATO and Russia has completely abandoned worrying about any kind of NATO threat from the north, et cetera, for this war just, I think, shows that to be um, idiotic. Yes, of course, Russia is mad about NATO, uh, but there's a lot of things in international politics that countries are mad about. Uh, for example, the EU has sanctions against the U.S. still from the Trump administration um, in response to their policies. But it's one thing to say, I, I don't like this policy, I'm really mad about it, and another, to actually start a war an actual war with your neighbor over, over something. So I think no one should be deluded into thinking that NATO, the U.S., or any actions other than the actions of the Russian government are responsible for starting this, this war. Okay, a third set of questions had to do with future international implications, you know, what's going to happen, um, and let me just try to address some of those, uh, those questions in a couple of minutes. Um, yeah, could the could the, um, could the conflict spread? Yes, if uh, Russia attacks other countries. One of the most interesting things to me is why Russia never attacked the supply lines coming in from the West. Why didn't they? Where is the Russian Air Force? Is it that they are incapable? Uh, is there domestic infighting um, in the military in Russia? Um, is the corruption so widespread that the lack of capacity is greater than we thought? Um, I don't think, given the current situation in Ukraine, that since Russia isn't even able to take over all of Ukraine, I seriously doubt they're going to go to another country. If they were, I think it would be Moldova. But I don't think uh, that there's any chance of that of the Russian side spreading. But there's a lot of, you know, um, speculation about false flag attacks. This missile that went awry in Poland um, a couple weeks ago. Some ideas that there can be some spread, but. That missile attack was actually um, um, enlightening in showing the level of restraint by not only um, uh, by, by Poland in particular. Um, and the, okay, I would just say the Polish government is totally supporting Ukraine here. But this government is not like such a great democratic, peace loving government that reacts calmly and 
and uh, in, a, in a normal way to all kinds of events. So the restraint that they showed in this attack, I think, is quite indicative of a change in their, pers their policy and their willingness to interact with other officials. So I think the, the, the chance of spreading is low. Um, what does the conflict mean for international norms? I'll just say one of the key things that's at stake here <clears throat> is if Russia were able to use a Russia, a nuclear power, is able to use a nuclear weapon in a non-nuclear weapon state, our entire infrastructure for nuclear non-proliferation is very much undermined. So I think there are some norms and the non-proliferation regime that depends on the, the MPT treaty that most countries of the world have signed um, is definitely at stake here um, on, the, on the nuclear side. But in other the other international norm that's really um, at, at play here is the norm of sovereignty, and that's something that lots of countries agree to. A lot of countries um, have borders they don't particularly uh, like. They wish there was some other situation somehow from history, etc., but they don't necessarily attack their neighbors. They live with the borders that they, they have. Um, okay, briefly, we don't have time, but how is the war affected global economy? It's affected commodity prices. It's affected oil and gas prices. Um, there's major economic implications of the war um, going forward. The high energy prices in Europe are causing not only inflation, but potentially could cause recession in some of those places. So there's a lot of effects that um, are caused by Russia. But um, the Russian economy has also been almost, I mean, just, I don't know, I wanted to say irre irreparably destroyed, but I don't, it's very hard to see a way forward. For Russia in the, in the next 10, 20 years, there's no foreign investment. There's a major lack of human capital. Um, they have no import of technology. And now they have reintroduced the most efficient, corrupt state management of the economy, a kind of uh, reversal of both globalization and privatization, putting Russia in like a place that's hard to see how they will get out of. Um, China, very important question. Uh, China is on the sidelines, but clearly dissatisfied with Russian actions in Ukraine, but nevertheless strongly supportive of Putin. Why? Because China sees this in terms of geopolitics, the West versus China. If Putin falls, this is a boom for the West. So China doesn't want Putin to fall, but they're also very unhappy that he started this risky war and is prosecuting it so poorly. They're also against use of nuclear weapons. So on the plus side for China, uh, I think they're a strong, um, strong uh, point of pressure against the use of nuclear weapons, but they're definitely Putin supporters. Some people think Putin will move to China. No, this will never happen. Okay? China is supporting his regime, and they support dictators, but Putin is not moving to China. Um, okay, I think, let me just... To, in the interest of time, just skip to the last uh, set of questions about perceptions and uh, the war in the U.S. and the world that I think is important. Um, okay, so one of the questions was about why didn't people in America take more seriously the issue of the annexation of Crimea? Um, and I think this is like a little bit hard to, to, um, to understand for people. At the time... Um, there's lots of different things going on. There's the Obama administration. There's um, there's still I think something people don't under, don't fully appreciate in this story of the rise of Putin, 
and the um, willingness of countries to let Putin turn his country in a, into an authoritarian country ruled by violence over 22 years is 9-11, the global war on terror, Operation Enduring Freedom. The U.S. absolutely relied on Russian cooperation to prosecute the war in Afghanistan and also on Russian cooperation to stop proliferation in Iran. So the U.S. was reliant on Putin for two very big goals and willing to turn a blind eye to what Putin was doing internally. And the, Chechen, the second Chechen war is just one example of that. Um, I think if you compare Grozny and Mariupol, it's just total decimation of a city and then bombardment of civilians. You see very, com very similar tactics. And, but the difference in Chechnya is they had no international support and there's very little media um, in Chechnya in comparison to this war. But turning, I think, to, in my opinion, 9-11 has a huge Im impact on um, the U.S. turning away from democracy and human rights and, um, and criticism or any kind of pressure on the Putin regime such that he becomes very, he's able to systematically poison, exile, jail, harass his opponents and turn the country into a, a very authoritarian country by, by um, 2014, but uh, even more so by 2022. Okay, and just finally, uh, what's the most common misconception that Americans have about the current war in Ukraine and the world's perceptions? I think there's a couple of things. Number one, again, with this Jeff Sachs uh, interview yesterday, this promotion of the idea that we need to have peace and we need to negotiate with Putin. Well, what have we learned in the last six months? We learned that Putin is one, we already knew <laughs> to some extent, but if you had any doubts, we know that Putin is untrustworthy. What it means <laughs> technically is if you let down your guard, he will take advantage of you. That's what it means to be untrustworthy. So when you go to negotiate with somebody like that, guess what? He will not keep his word and he will try to take advantage of the situation. So on one level, people need to understand that negotiating with somebody that's untrustworthy is simply a recipe for being taken advantage of. Second, what we have learned as this war has evolved is that the areas of Russian occupation are areas not of peace. These are areas of mass atrocities against Ukrainians and anybody uh, suspected of supporting the Ukrainian um, sovereignty or, or nation. And so what it means when you say, let's have a peace deal, let's um, have a ceasefire, it means let's leave all those people in occupied areas to the, um, to the whims of Russian military and um, to be subject to further atrocities. So there's no just, we have peace if uh, we stop fighting Russia in this case. In this case, we have learned that the Russian occupation is associated with atrocity, and if you want to stop these atrocities, there's no um, answer other than a military um, solution, unfortunately, at this point. It doesn't mean you never negotiate in the sense of, like, ever have a conversation. But the conversation is of this sort, that at some point, Russia will be defeated by the Ukrainian army and will say, okay, look, we, we like, have uh, achieved all of the goals of our special military operation, and we've won, and, like, now we're going home. That's the kind of thing. It's that pushing... Russians to move out of Ukrainian territory, not um, agreeing to any kind of um, so-called negotiated settlement, et cetera. So I think that is a misconception. But just to say, in my experience, the United States remains very supportive of Ukraine, both Democrats and Republicans. So I think there is like a fringe left 
uh, fringe left right maybe like small minority of Americans who are not um, supporting the Biden administration position on this but I think that actually the vast majority of Americans are very much um, in favor of continuing to support Ukraine okay thank you